Hey, what's going on, champs? I'm Erin Deliosa. Welcome to an Immigrant's Life podcast, my podcast about immigrants and immigration and everything in between. Thank you for listening and downloading the show, and thank you for supporting my dad. Welcome back, Immigrant Nation. Another week, another new episode. I'm not going to lie. It's been a few days, but I'm still riding high from a recent win for the 2022 Canadian Ethnic Media Association's Best Podcast. I've said it on my acceptance speech, but I will say it again. Thank you so much, Immigrant Nation. That award wouldn't mean anything if it wasn't for your total and undying support. So from the bottom of me heart, maraming salamat po. Thank you very much. You'll know how to reach me at An Immigrant's Life on all social media. And our email is at animmigrantslife at yahoo.com. That is if you want to come on the podcast or if you know someone that wants to come on the podcast, that's the best way to get in touch with me. And let's talk. So that is that. Now, let's talk about the episode. Despite suffering from immense mental, emotional, and physical pain, Our guest this week never gave up on achieving her dreams. In fact, she even uses that pain to help others through their journey through pain. Let's get to it, shall we? Without further ado, let's get into the show. Isa, dalawa, tatlo. Today's guest is a therapist, an artist, and a trained killer. She'll hurt you with a head kick and then kill you with her sweet smile. Everyone, please welcome Taylor Murahashi. Hello, hello. Nice to be on here. Thank you so much for guesting me today. Oh, definitely, man. I mean, when I saw you, I'm like, this chick is cool. I'm a doctor. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, um, I appreciate that with my uh, arbitrary Insta posting. But uh, definitely, it's going to get a lot more flushed out. I have a lot more um, kind of like content and things in the work. So mm-hmm. thank you. Amazing, amazing. Before we go anywhere, I want to say thank you for coming on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Of course. And it's also super nice to just be able to connect with more immigrant creatives and diverse creatives because uh, it's just been really refreshing getting to see how much that scene has been revitalized mm. and like revalued, especially after 2020 when we're all locked in our houses. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, it's part of it when I started that. I started like in the heat of the pandemic, but I mm. always wanted to start a podcast. Ooh. Like five years before that. Yeah, I feel like the pandemic itself kind of like catalyzed me um, wanting to also start my own podcast, which we've been talking about. So mm-hmm. everyone else stay tuned. Um, he will also be featured on mine. Uh. Uh, and I also think like, a lot of the creatives that I'm surrounded with, like photographers, um, even like things as like common now, quote unquote, as like crocheting and knitting, like it used to be so niche. And then you see everyone else who's just like, oh yeah, I can straight up, this is my yeast colony and I named it and I've categorized it. And now I bake bread professionally. It's so <laughs> beautiful. And just, it's been so fun seeing it's like if we really had the time outside of the daily nine to five capitalistic hellscape grind what would we truly want to invest in mm-hmm. and choosing to want to invest in community and hear those stories and uphold those 
what a beautiful thing to be able to be like, I now have a capacity for because I got to take a step back. Mm, yeah, that's a great question, by the way. What would you want to do out of nine to five? This is my out of nine to five, to be honest. <laughs> that's fair. Um, I guess same. Mm. Lots of intersections, though. Yeah, plus, you know, I, I go for bike rides, you know, go for hikes, stuff like that, you know. But I don't think I'll ever retire. Just one of those people who's always like, I'm always going to work. Um, I feel like my my mom or not, you know, I'd have to say my family's kind of like the same way. They're like, oh, I'm going to work. And even after retirement, got to always have that hustle or always have like that Filipina side hustle. Like all of my titas be like slinging something <laughs> or they know someone or they're doing something or they're hosting some arbitrary class. <laughs> uh, and so I was like, oh, I don't know if I'd ever work that hard and hustle all the time and then i like see myself doing that like right now and i'm like oh okay i i'm the same <laughs> <laughs> isn't it funny that we try to run away from our parents so much and oh, then yeah. in the end you know what i am them <laughs> oh, those quirks um so next level uh totally caught me slipping up so i was like oh man i'm never gonna fall asleep with my hand in a chip bag <laughs> and like bet <laughs> i'm already falling asleep with my hand and chip back <laughs> and even just like down to those kind of like finer detail things that's so true and then like you know putting on like that therapist hat on it's like yeah that's also true there's so many influences and generational things you don't really think about until you're so much like later on and you realize you're starting to follow those cycles and steps and you're like mm. ah that's me <laughs> that's funny you mentioned that your mom's filipina and the other half is uh white um <laughs> from idaho rural idaho yeah um straight up owns farm uh so i am biracial uh so initially my family um immigrated to america when they were fleeing the marcos regime was not really a good spot for them at the time uh my lola josepha which Shout out to you, Lola. Thank you for helping me fulfill my wildest dreams and our ancestors' wildest dreams. So thank you for bringing us here. Uh, she married an American soldier um, mm. and learned English uh, because at the time they were, you know, providing like English lessons in the Philippines. And that was also kind of around similar period with like uh, her just realizing, wow, I don't really like this quality of life. We need to, we have to move. Mm. Um and so as a child, like that was all the context I knew. Um, but as I was growing up, like the romanticism of her falling in love with an American soldier kind of started to fade away until like years after her death. Um, it was really random. My mom was like, oh, yeah, I forgot you inherited Lola's gun. And I was like, what? Lola's gun? And she's like, you know, she'd shoot the gorillas off the off the land. And I was like, like. <laughs> the like like militant gorillas and she's like yeah it's lola's pistol I was like, what and as like as i'm older now and i understand like the context of why my family had to leave um it's just really given me another like level of appreciation of holding two worlds as being a first wave immigrant um like my friends and i we kind of have this thing of I'm as much half as I am whole. Um, so like growing up in Portland, Oregon, right? Everyone nowadays are like, oh, social justice city where Antifa is going to like burn down the city and all that stuff. Um, we're actually a clan state. Like not a lot of people talk. Everyone romanticizes Oregon and Portland and they're like, oh my God, food cart city, which 
okay, our food carts do mediocrely slap. I give us that. Very accessible for food on the go. <laughs> it's kind of dangerous with my wallet and job. I digress. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Portland was actually one of the last states to ratify the 14th Amendment. Um, mm-hmm. And even though they were for the abolition of slavery, it was actually to get rid of Black people from Oregon it, to maintain a white Mecca. And so I didn't know any of this growing up, but I was one of five total Asians in the school that I was at uh, with under 10 people that weren't white or Mm. more specifically wasps. So uh, even though in the Filipino community, right, like I'm light skin, I'm definitely not like I can even be passing sometimes depending. But if I'm like put in the middle of a rural white school, uh, I'm ugly, I'm weird looking, my food's stinky, things like that, right? And so, like, I was just growing up with so many feelings of contradictions mm. until I felt like I really grew into myself. So, yeah, it's kind of like the mix of both families. Um, mm. And so most of my family, they immigrated to California after they spent some time in uh, our place in Oregon because we were the first of our family to immigrant here and kind of helped the rest come through. So we were the first house. My Lola was definitely the matriarch of coordinating all of that. And so I'd spend summers in California, like half the summer in California and the other half in rural Idaho. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I would from like these like rodeo, like, um, I don't know, like state festival. I don't, I don't know how to describe it. Uh, State fair, state fair. Yeah. Uh, Where there's like 12 people and thousands of like corn and, the wildlife and just all that pigs and, and cows oh cows sheeps the the beautiful little avon tournaments for one i'm so sorry for my uh anyone who's like you are butchering this i i am <laughs> uh, i really am <laughs> uh and then i get plopped down in like san fran or la right after that so mm-hmm. and then go back to oregon <laughs> so it was it was kind of um a little bit strange like first like my summers growing up but Mm. i really did appreciate the exposure to all those dualities you know yeah you see different sides different perspectives yeah yeah like i can sorry going just going back to your lola where is your family from uh in the philippines pangenasan okay yeah yeah uh which all of them my uh like they all speak it but uh since i was first wave actually uh, when my family initially came to Oregon uh, because their accents, even though they took the time to learn English and speak it, they were put in special ed classes mm. uh, because they were perceived as stupid because of their accent. And so, <laughs> which, which is like hilarious now because it was like they were multilingual and not only multilingual, like multilingual because like Tagalog is different than like mm-hmm. the dialects and all, and all of that uh, my Lola actually spoke seven languages seven uh, yes seven whole entire languages uh, which is just m- amazing right and to come from that and then to be placed in something where it just wasn't even appropriate education and also taking resources from individuals that needed it uh, they decide not to teach me Tagalog actually um mm. so that was that's something that i'm actually currently learning which oh, has been a really fun way to like reclaim my culture and embrace it okay all right i know that's one that's one of my regrets too i didn't learn another dialect mm. because i'm a tagalog and tagalog they have this aura of like we're the shit we're the boss right yeah. which is not true at all 
because, <laughs> <At all. laughs> because first of all, the Pangasinense, they're the best cook. The Visayas are the great singers. We're just like, we're good artists. That's what I'm going to give the Tagalogs. But other than that, we don't really do anything else. <laughs> Gotta give them the artist thing. That's so funny that you mentioned that with like the lyrical stuff, because um, I remember like growing up, uh, some like hearing like i don't know western fairy tales like cinderella when mm. i'm just like why is this bitch be tripping and then <laughs> i'll be hearing like these filipino fair, uh like folklore and stuff too of like asawaga is gonna get you at night kind of things mm. and so i just i don't know why that kind of it reminded me of um bakanawa like how when like you know you bang the pots and pans into or sing into the night and like that's why they're so lyrical mm -hmm. um and so my lola was always like we sound like birds and when we say, uh speak and that's why and i was like oh cool and so there was always like this mysticism behind like that specific dialect mm -hmm. um which it's hard to find access and education in oregon too um so i've been just mostly relying online stuff okay that's fine yeah. that's, that, that's the best way really is just talking to someone that's the best yeah. way yeah uh immersion honestly because uh i actually speak decent spanish um mm. started abroad a couple of times in costa rica and uh oaxaca and southern mexico uh and so like learning spanish and just actually going into the countries i had never learned it better um i also had like teachers that were like that was the hill they die on they would not speak english that whole hour and i was like what a relief you don't have to answer my stupid question maybe you are but i don't know what you're saying and so it like forced me to learn it uh and so uh i'm i'm excited for kind of having like a new career transition more into private practice just mm. open up my capacity to reconnect with some more like philam centers and stuff around here so uh also a non-profit like or excuse me grassroots uh gabriella is another one that i got on my radar that i'm excited to reach out to so gabriella. To <laughs> like that yeah that's that's an, that's an old one gabriella yeah yeah, yeah. And, uh they definitely have a little sector in portland uh because just even access to like filipino groceries in oregon is hard like really? everyone's like yeah yeah they're like oh go to fubon which is like kind of like that's like technically the largest asian shopping center but instead i go to california and my family they all like you know load me up with the big old bag to take back to the fam here and then also other community members here so that's yeah. funny that's one thing like i'm really proud of our culture that we're very generous super generous yeah and also I didn't really realize how much my love language is entrenched in food. And, <laughs> you know, like if you step away from the fam and then you come back from the fam and then they have like the big old like feast and stuff or just mm -hmm. like merienda time and like tea time and talking. And it's just like, I miss being able to do that as accessibly in California than mm -hmm. like you can in Oregon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love when I love inviting other culture to our parties, you know? So much fun. Yes, so much fun. It blows uh, their mind. Like, There's so much food. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, and you have to try every single one of them or you're going to offend. <laughs> <laughs> and 
when you ain't coming back and they're like i'll eat everything and they're like oh i can totally do this um i it kind of cracks me up because like uh since i have like a lot of friends that are fighters they have like hella metabolism filipino food parties and fighters that's like a firm handshake (laughs) 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 they're like oh look how strong your friends are and they're always eating so much and i was like yeah they are (laughs) that's funny man but the thing is the reason why there's so much food is it's not really to consume there it's yeah. actually you have to ballot it and bring yeah, it home to go home things like i can pack food so good um <laughs> i'll totally see that kicking in after like uh like in college it um i'd be like you know having college parties like with friends or whatever everyone's mm. totally like knocked the fuck out and here i am like packing the food <laughs> drunk and like making sure everyone has to go when they wake up the next morning um which was actually kind of funny because uh i also had like some other friends that are like southeast asian where they kind of have like similar cultures and yeah. stuff would also be standing up late at night with me doing those things at, like three in the morning That's packing funny, the party man. food yeah i love i have this joke that like for other like i don't know like a white person or whatever i'll be yeah. like yo you cannot hang out with filipinos you're gonna be fat and then they're gonna call you fat and then they're gonna feed you more. <laughs> they are, and they're gonna make fun of you while feeding you too. Exactly. Yes, you you have to like you have to come in. Um, I I, I always tell my like femme friends that have like purses or bags, mm. bring the tiniest one possible because they will <laughs> to the rim, and you just don't understand. Um, I I it was actually funny because uh I had uh an aunt on my dad's side to like the white side that was also in California. And so like, Mm. I like to like, you know, visit them all up in there. And she dropped me off at one of my teeth, house and um, the other part of California. And I was like, okay, when you come in, so you, you don't, you bring the tiniest bag possible. You accept (laughs) only some guavas, but not all the guavas. And she's like, okay, she accepted all the guavas and left with like (laughs) tote bag. (laughs) And she's like, I don't know how I'm going to eat these all. I, it's just me and my mom at home. That's like, it's fine. Uh, They don't care. They're going to feed you anyway. And then just going to give you more food and more food till you explode. Exactly. But I really love that part of our culture because it's such a fun warmth to share with others. Mm. Um, Being able to bring back all those like Filipino goodies that you definitely can or you kind of can get in like, you know, Oregon, right? Um, Mm. Being able to share those with like the kids that I work with uh, Mm. was super exciting because back like when I was working with... um, a program a village for one which shout out to a village for one um i believe they have a fundraiser thing going on in december so if uh anyone wants to check them out they're actually only one of total two non-profits in oregon that mm. specifically serve sex traffic survivors also sorry for cutting you off we missed this part if you have anything to promote say it now oh then i totally missed that sorry about that <laughs> okay. yeah um, I guess they have a little holiday giving tree is that little mm. promo thing is that one. So, yeah. <laughs> How about your art page, your Instagram, if anyone wants to reach out? Um, yeah, I also have an art page, Dreaming of Nightmares, which is attached to my Instagram, uh, The Perfect Hell. Never changed my edgy middle school handle. Um, it is what it is now. <laughs> uh, I also am currently fighting out of Equip Academy. So if y'all are wanting to check out a woman and black owned gym, uh, phenomenal. Uh, we also are 
a little gym that serves kind of like more of like the local community to make martial arts more affordable to keep you know kids off the street and out of gangs so uh we also have some pro fighters uh kiana moyer who's going to be fighting november 19th uh Mm. for another pro fight so if y'all are interested in seeing some fights or accessible martial arts uh i'd check out a quick academy that's awesome so you're a practitioner of bjj and taekwondo which one did you get into first? Yeah, um, so I initially started uh, doing Taekwondo uh, when I was a little, little kid. Um, back when I was, let's see here, yeah, in preschool, um, and no, kindergarten, excuse me, I was actually getting beat up by bullies um, mm. because it was a white predominant school. Um, and they were like, your face is so round and funny. Let's make it <laughs> let's fix it and they'd like rub it against the chain link fence and stuff yeah and no one would believe me because they're just like this little and it was like this like little blonde hair blue eyed boy who was the perfect um guy he was really connected with like the church that was like influential in that school at the time and so he was he he was like impervious right um and so my parents they gave me a choice so like you can get into music like you want or you can get to martial arts like you want. And I grew up on Bruce Lee, man. Like, <laughs> that was an easy decision. I didn't want my face smelling that gross chain link fence anymore. And um, I can always sing in the shower, right? <laughs> so uh, I chose martial arts. Yeah, and uh, the closest thing that um, at the time that was accessible was Taekwondo. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I actually later uh, on got my Cookie Kwan certified uh, third degree black belt. Congratulations. how much I committed into it. Yeah. What did you like about it? Um, whew, That's a loaded question. So what I really love about specifically Taekwondo as a martial arts is it has such a rich history um mm. like taking the actual uh dawn test you have to know korean uh you have to like read it and know the history and stuff of the martial arts uh so i just really had a deep appreciation of how it existed like not just as like a sport but as an art form um but what made me fall in love with it ultimately was the commodification of it mm. so a lot of um taekwondo studios pretty much were like pay to play and my studio ended up pretty much doing the same thing uh, while like overly promoting guys um i was actually really wanting to go for the junior olympics at the time um Mm. but no one was really pushing it or competitive enough and so i started kind of uh looking around at other martial arts studios um until it was actually let me make a scream up that took me away from taekwondo and got me into mma (laughs) okay yeah yeah so what got me into is like you know kali and stuff like that arnis we call it arnis yeah yeah uh Mm. was for your third degree black belt test you have to specialize in a weapon and i was like well i've always loved this so and this is also something my ancestors have always done and my lolo he actually did that uh and so i was like okay yeah i've seen him with like pictures and stuff Uh, let's just do that and so i went and i started training it because initially you just have to like do this like cute little form and perform it um to show your mastery of the weapon Mm. um but as I was going there, I was getting pushed so much and I got to like see actual like people do real Tai Chi at that gym. Um, like 
I remember seeing this old guy. He had like this fan and I, and he was like doing these forums. And I was like actually watching him because uh, I don't know. Have you seen those ones before with the big fan? Yeah. 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 And he saw me watching it one day and he's just like, do you want to actually see what this is supposed to do? And I was like, yes. And so because they also had like the little fake plastic knives to go with the, mm-hmm. <laughs> the collie mm-hmm. at the time uh, that he had someone come at him with it and he disarmed him with the fan. And it was the sickest thing ever. And in that moment, I was like, OK, I love you, Taekwondo, but we're going to break up after I get my third dog. <laughs> and, and I moved forward from that. Yeah. <laughs> That's that's one thing that I didn't like about Taekwondo too. It was like, you don't really use your hands. Yeah, why would you just be like, ah, uh, I have four limbs here. Let's <laughs> just take away and only use two. Um, exactly. I will admit, I got some nasty speed from Taekwondo. Uh, I can do those kicks where they consider them like fancy, like, I don't know, people call them tornado kicks, 360 roundhouse kicks, whatever your colloquialism is um those are easy like they make you do that as like a kid but then they're mm. like oh look at them my match which uh obviously is a lot more difficult than in a taekwondo sparring match where you're like sparring for points um mm-hmm. whereas like i'm going for their face <laughs> <laughs> so the intention totally different too i'm sure you went on a tournament um yeah uh i've i've had like a few competitions before um like little bit for taekwondo but i know at the time um the team just really wasn't that competitive uh Mm. so i didn't really get to get that itch out until uh i started bjj Mm. so after i kind of like left um them i ended up going into team quest um where i trained under matt Leyland, who's actually the uh, olympic uh wrestling coach for the usa team um so yeah yeah so he's amazing great great place um they took me in kind of like as a teenager so i'd say like maybe like 16 ish is when i started there um and that's where i met luis pedro uh who ended up being my uh, brazilian jiu-jitsu coach Mm. and that's where i really got to get into competing for uh, jiu-jitsu what do you like about bjj um i think had like a very similar structure to taekwondo in the sense that there there was that deep rich cultural history that i just really loved about that and i don't know there's just something that i can't quite put my finger on when i think about that but i think actually what initially attracted me to it is because i sucked like horrible you put me on the ground and i'm like you may i, I may as well just die right here like, like a little <laughs> beetle on my back like, and that's why i chose it okay so there's so much different martial arts which one do you think is the one that is effective in the streets uh mma because like if you think about like martial arts moderna now right um historically we have so many martial arts legends that are documented but also lost right Mm. um but because of like globalization travel cross-cultural we're starting to refine martial arts as an art form um and so i think those unities of being able to mix and match for your body type and your accessibility needs that's truly the best martial arts um because as much as like i i have a mixed relationship with taekwondo right um i i do give it odes to having quite the speed for my kicks um 
BJJ. Uh, I know a lot of people, they always like give it criticism. They're like, oh, you pajama fighters. And I'm just like, one of my favorite disses, by the way. <laughs> I don't think about people say that. Um, they're like, when are you going to fight someone who's walking around with a gi? And I was like, bro, I'm in Oregon. Everyone wears a <laughs> and a jacket. Like, you should say, come over here. I'll get rid of naked choke you. We'll see what happens. <laughs> Fuck around and find out. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I just kind of kept at uh, jujitsu until I realized I didn't suck as much but mm. that's that's kind of like the joke of jujitsu is you always suck like the day you think you don't is the day you just need to quit because <laughs> <laughs> then you stop learning uh and i just i love the endlessness of it um mm. because that journey is always going to be something i can take with me throughout my life um my body is needs as i age that's going to change my style of martial arts too mm. and that's what i love about the fluidity of not just jujitsu but mma in general mm. right like I can, um, for Taekwondo, uh, I have crappy little hands that uh, actually took me out of the game mm. uh, for five years. What happened? So kind of, uh, so kind of circling to when you were like, oh, have you competed? Yeah, I, I did compete with um, jujitsu, won some medals, had all the fun with that um, as a teen. But for MMA, there actually wasn't that many 100, 115 pounders at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I focused more so on college and academics uh, just because I was kind of forced to have to have some give in my life. And uh, I developed a disability in both my hands and actually lost control of them for a bit. What um, kind so- is it? Um, it was just a lot of like, kind of like different things and genetic things I didn't know, like I kind of had, um, but apparently when you overwork, um, it can actually trigger those latent things and cause Mm -hmm. them to come out. Um, which is a horrifying thing. The public doesn't really know a lot of people in the mental health profession actually burn out of the field early because they are rendered disabled from overworking. Uh, yeah yeah like i know colleagues that have autoimmune disorders because of it um just because the expectation for kind of like the whole college arc is you have an unpaid internship Mm. which is not reasonable when you have a lot of mental health professionals coming from the communities that they want to inevitably serve so Mm. lots of gatekeeping there that i overcame um but after i've within this year reclaimed um autonomy and like strength back in my hands um which it went from me dropping like little coffee mugs to now i'm just like pulling weights and doing like workouts and stuff like dropping people yeah uh-huh. so grappling and so that's uh what's been kind of unique coming back uh while working with a disability as martial artists mm. is honoring my accessibility needs um i like at this time like my grip game for jujitsu is not the same as it used to be mm. uh but no gi i don't have to be gripping on a gi because there isn't a gi to grip and so just that slight adaptability of style change is everything and mm-hmm. that's why it's hard to say what the best martial arts is because it's like, what is the best martial arts for your body kind of mm, thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. So pretty roundabout. <laughs> Do you like gi or no gi? I always have a heart for gi um, just because like that's what I've trained the longest, right? Mm. Um, I think it puts me right back into that like childhood nostalgia. Mm. But I'm really in love with Nogi because uh, it's a whole world for me. Um, and I'm surrounded by a bunch of phenomenal Nogi grapplers. Uh, and so it's it's an exciting realm that's really, really applicable to the MMA ring. Beautiful. So, yeah, so by default, 
nogi because it's practical. Um, Give when I'm feeling really nostalgic. <laughs> oh, just for the listener that doesn't know what a gi is, if you could explain. Oh, yeah. Um, a gi uh, for jiu-jitsu is kind of like those like little formal martial arts uniforms where they have a thick collar. Um, and also, they, there's like a bunch of different types of fabrics that they use and stuff. Hmm. Um, I'm not going to pretend like I know them really well. It's pretty much it's like karate uniform. That's what it is. Totally. Like, think of an OG kind of uniform that you'd see <laughs> in, like, a stylized movie or something. Yeah. Exactly. Have you knocked out someone with your tiny hands? Yes, I have. I have definitely. Um, I actually knocked a bully out with a throw. Um, it was just a little... <laughs> so, there was th these guys um, in this, like, in that rural school that I went to that just didn't believe I did martial arts, which was mm. really funny because, like, martial arts for me has always been, like, this island outside of not really fitting in any of these communities I was surrounded in growing up because mm. I'm not really LA after I come straight from like a state fair in Idaho and I'm not really Idaho because I'm too city from LA. <laughs> it just like doesn't make any sense. Right. <laughs> um, and then I'm just strange in Oregon. Cause also like when I say rural, there are totally different brands, right? Like, mm. so I didn't even fit in, in that regard. <laughs> um, and martial arts was this beautiful little oasis for me where I was just myself. And so I never had to prove it because why would I have to be like, this is me. And it was never like a bragging thing. It was more of a catharsis, self-defense. Um, and now as an adult, I realized reconnecting with sacred movement as a child. Mm. And so these bullies were kind of like, oh, I bet she doesn't. And so one of them had the bright idea to try to pick me up from behind. Um, no. I didn't even know that they were going to do anything physical because I was like, why would you? I, I do want to Why would you do this? Which, of course, at the time, no <laughs> Why shit. Why would you do this? I have to kill you now. <laughs> it was like, well, you fucked around, found out. <laughs> so they picked me up. They tried to pick me up, but then, like, that really quick reflex just popped in, and I just did a really simple little shoulder throw, mm. which was right into a curb, actually. No. So they kind of got a little knocked out for a second and then came to, and then they were like, you got to go to the principal's office now. And I was like, well, fuck. But my parents, they always were like, don't swing first, but if mm. you have to swing back, you finished it. So and I did. Filipino. So Filipino. <laughs> um, Cause my Lola, she, even though she was like, you know, very sweet and she was the matriarch, she would put her foot down. Right. Um, my mom take no shit. And so, mm -hmm. Because if you do, they're going to just keep pushing you around. That's um, what I tell my kids every day. I don't want you throwing any punches. Yeah. But if they throw a punch, you better make sure it counts. Right. Exactly. Make sure it counts. Because I could have been excessive, right? But I didn't. I, I just had to throw them. That, that was all that really needed to happen. And they're like, oh, you're going to the principal's office now. At the time. He was actually really rad. Um, so when he got the whole story, he's just like, so you jumped her and she defended herself. Mm. And he's like, when you put it that way, I was fine. I walked out there with grins. Um, bully was obviously like suspended for whatever. Um, but yeah, so I have put bullies down before or I don't know. I've also had like random kids just constantly tried to square up because i was always small and petite mm. um so something about just the patriarchal ego cannot handle the fact that a petite woman may in fact take you down mm. um and so 
sometimes like transfer kids that were like coming into the school would be like, oh, she's a martial artist. And they just wanted to like prove themselves to other kids. Mm. And then the kids that have been like in this rural high school with me, well, rural school for actually like grade school through part of high school right hmm. um they're like uh, uh, oh no like please you you don't have to actually anymore <laughs> after that one kid right and they fuck around and find out um <laughs> and the last one that did it um he wanted to prove that his karate kick was superior um and i was like i don't actually care um good for you i hope your kick's good and then he tried to kick me, and so I k- head kicked him, <laughs> which was the Children's Museum on a field trip. And so there was cameras there too, and, and so they had to get like the security involved. So as a child, I was just like shaking him around, and it's like, oh my god, they're calling security on me now. Wait, and- I love that you went up for a head kick. You could have kicked him leg or something. Oh, okay, yeah, of course a head kick because like y- you gotta commit, right? You gotta commit. You gotta you commit. Kill the guy. Well, because I don't want to have to kick again. That's too much energy <laughs> efficiency, my friend. Efficiency. Well, with your amazing kick, I'm pretty sure if you hit him in the leg, I'm pretty sure he's not getting up for days. Maybe I didn't want to hear. It. I don't know, but it was a reflex, right? Like maybe I just didn't want to hear him gab afterward. Uh, but whatever was going on in my little child mind was. I don't want to do this again. <laughs> and so I really committed to it at that time. And after that, no one did. Um, that didn't stop, like, you know, people wanting to, like, bug me and stuff like that and bully me. But they sure didn't physically bully me. And I put a stop to that. So How about girls? Do they bully you? Oh, they were more racist. Um, <laughs> they're bullying than anything. It was always like wow are you a dude because you're so muscular um and like really weird things like that which Mm. as as a teenage girl um just or just as a feminine individual at the time like being called a dude and muscular was like a horrible disc i'm non-binary and feminine um so the the, the irony in that i don't care anymore (laughs) but uh now as an adult i'm just like fuck yeah look at these muscles i don't have extra time getting Games. uh yeah i saw this like a uh, vague video uh where it was just like hey little birdie you like this bread and it was just like this filipino like flex she's like i fucking love this bread and that's me <laughs> <laughs> my ancestors blessed me with this bread <laughs> hells yeah man i love it it's so funny that you know in culture in the west it's like like you said patriarchal and in the philippines is it's almost balanced you know yeah yeah which that was also like such a culture shock to me was navigating the contradictions within like western expectations of asian women mm. there's the hypersexualization. there there's the expectations to be subservient and quiet and meek mm. which a panaya is anything but that's why i married the white chick right i was like <laughs> what do you want me to do i ain't gonna be making you pizza like no uh uh so that there was that but then there was also when i did flip that switch when i would set boundaries maybe not appropriately but as as a child would right Mm. um where they're like oh now you're dragon lady and then oh you're ghetto and then they would start throwing in more classes more pathologizing and still racist rhetoric within that Hmm. yeah definitely so you mentioned to me that you're a therapist for sex trafficking survivors yes yeah how did you end up doing that 
Oh, God. Um, that's a whole that's a whole character arc. So I actually didn't start um college with therapy in mind, uh, necessarily, necessarily. So um I'm a survivor. Um and mm. part of surviving, I was inspired. I wanted to be the hero that I didn't have at the time. And so I didn't know what that looked like. And at the time when you're in America and you're like kind of exposed to certain cultures, you get a lot of romanticism of law enforcement mm -hmm. and the cops. And so I thought I wanted to be like in criminal minds, a FBI psychologist or whatever. And so with just like hoping someday I could arrest horrifying people like that and see what justice looked like. Um, now as an adult, I realize that there is so much more outside the police. That's a whole other thing. Um, and so I ended up actually being a cadet sergeant <laughs> and I like, I learned all about, um, the police kind of going through like this internship while getting my associates and stuff. And as I was going through that, I realized that like, this still doesn't feel right. Um, because of all, all the common things we talk about, like, you know, uh, seeing mental health calls, they're not adequately equipped to handle that. And most of Portland is like substance abuse and mental health calls. And they're not trained clinical professionals who are dealing with crisis. They're people with two year, four year degrees with a gun and just everyday people. Mm. And that's not going to truly serve the community. And as I was going through my journey, trying to figure out like what I wanted to do, I kept on hitting this isn't it. This isn't it. Keep asking why. And so my why ultimately drove me not to settle anywhere. Um, my actually, my career with law enforcement um, got to the point where I had an offer from the CIA um, and I chose to be a therapist instead because mm. um, that offer was going to pay for my grad school, which I went through at the time in 2020. Um, I did advanced standing. So I got my master's in a year during the pandemic. 11 out of 10 would not recommend doing. It's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I never want to do that again. Um, and it, they, they would have paid for my college. Hmm. But after having that whole experience with like law enforcement and seeing all of these deficits in ways that they're not equipped to serve the community, I just, I, I didn't want that. And so I realized that I had, after all of these years, I had carved out all of these niche capabilities and skills and potentials. And I had that answer within me. And so I chose my own path to be a therapist, to serve the community in the way that they needed and that I could. Mm. You mentioned you're a survivor, survivor of what? Um, sexual assault and, um, mm. Some, some moderate trafficking, which uh, don't really want to get uh, much detail into. Also, oh, just okay. out of, uh, you know, honor of individuals that also might need listening to. It's not necessary. Mm. Um, but I definitely totally like to pay ode to the fact that not one survivor story is the same and not mm. one is different. And so I'm always mindful of the fact that while I have experiences, I will never be the perfect expert, whereas these survivors that trust me enough and it's, it's an honor to facilitate their journey. I'm just a facilitator. Um, I don't know more about their lives than they do in their own brains. Um, and so being able to have that relational model and understand the complexities and the dynamics and the shame that come with it um, 
is really helpful and I think gives me an enriching practice because you can't read that in a book. Like mm. you have all these white academics being like hashtag trauma-informed care when communities of color have been healing trauma since war for 500 years of like occupation, right? Like that's what the Philippines have been doing. That's what black communities have been doing. That's what indigenous communities have been doing. And then you have these white academics in college telling you, I know better because trademark. Mm. And so there's also that layer within the mental health field too. Yeah. I like what you said that, that I was listening to a podcast about this Korean woman, North Korean. She escaped mm -hmm. and she's in America now and doing well. And she was asked that, why don't you go to a therapist? And she's like, therapist? Yeah. What you gonna say to me? Yeah. I'm from North Korea, guy. <laughs> like, what, what do they have to offer? And then also another thing I challenge, I, I straight up, I will drag the DSM-5. My Yelp review of it is shit. That's what it is. <laughs> uh, because when you're looking at the DSM-5, right, like how pathologizing and Eurocentric and Western is it truly? And that's why I always caution communities of like, you know, BIPOC people mm. to have a culturally competent therapist that is of your community, if possible, if mm. possible, because the DSM-5 will like, let's say a good example, pretend stereotypical psychopath, right? Um, you have to have some criminal law, criminology within your background where you violate mainstream law, even mm. though mainstream law is generally based off of systemic oppression within America. And so if I were to pretend I have a mom who is wanting to is unable to breastfeed and she steals like you know formula is she a criminal fuck no she's feeding her child and so i refuse to base my practice off of the criminalization and that type of western lens mm -hmm. when working with individuals but as i'm navigating this field i'm realizing that white colleagues just because they read a textbook they don't actually know and they do a lot more damage than they should um, mm. when practicing. For sure. Do you work for an organization? or you, I think you mentioned that you're doing solo practice now. Um, yeah. So I do work within a private practice, um, which just to minimize um, joke people and spamming uh, for trying to RSVP with me, I'm not going to mention it right now. Um, but I do work for a private practice, um, which I know a lot of people when we're talking about the nonprofit industrial complex um, is are really like, oh, well, now you sold out for private health insurance and stuff. But that's actually where I get to have like my most fun. Um, the people that I'm working with now uh, actually kind of are very similar to me, where they're first wave individuals or fresh immigrants that have broken that generational trauma and poverty and systemic oppression. And they finally made it, quote unquote, within their field. And now mm. that they're stable, they're like, and now what? And now they have these big questions of how can I heal myself after I've done these beautiful grand feats? My ancestors are proud. My living ancestors are proud. But I'm in so much pain right now. And so I have the privilege to be able to work with individuals like that while also being able to serve Medicaid, which are primarily the individuals I'm working with. Mm. What's the difference between a therapist, a psychologist, and a social worker? Yeah, yeah. Um, so therapist is, I'd say, like a, a general label that a psychologist or a social worker can have. Mm. A counselor is separate. And I tend to see them more so with occupational therapy, 
which you can also do mental health therapy for that, um, uh, which is interesting. Um, and so for social work and psychology, I actually started my degree in psychology. Um, I actually started, I initially wanted to do neurosurgery, but that obviously did not <laughs> panned out. Uh, but what caused me to choose social work over psychology was when I was working in the hospital. Mm. Uh, so there was this hospital uh, psychiatrist uh, and he heard that I was like going to uh, college for uh, psychology and he's like, why? And I'm like, well, because I don't think a criminal justice degree is like actually going to do anything. And mm. he's like, yes, but why psychology, not social work? And I was like, well, why social work? He's like, here, let me take you back to the psych board and let's just let's just take a poll of who would go back and do social work over psychology. And I was like, okay, didn't answer my question. So it brings me back into like these psych ward wings and we're like talking to the different mental health providers and like, oh yeah, social work all the way. And I was like, but why? And all of them were like, because you can move around the field, baby. You don't gotta be pigeonholed. And I was like, pigeonholed. And so basically like, uh, and also it's, it's a lot less schooling. So you can get kind of more pigeonholed within psychology because of whatever modality and things that you choose and it's more medically based mm. or uh, and so you're checking off like oh they have they met x y and z criteria they're demonstrating these symptoms therefore they have this where social work is more so i recognize the systemic influences of the macro and meso and micro and how those all can create a person um so that's more so how I can inform my practice. Mm -hmm. So like a good example would be, let's say someone lashes out in anger, right? Um, but it's more so defense mechanism based off of PTSD and generational trauma. Mm -hmm. um, or maybe someone just generally has a different culture and that's just ways that they communicate and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not going to diagnose them with a mental health illness when they're just not white. Like, <laughs> uh, so th that's kind of the vague way I can kind of describe social work and psychology. Um, I think what I really like about social work is I can choose different areas. So micro is like more on one-on-one -on -one like therapy. Macro is policy writing, which is like what I did uh, in program design at the county level. Um, so I did a little bit of that during 2020. That's actually my area of focus and expertise is uh, continued education for providers. Mm. Um, and then there's the mezzo, which is more globalized um, type of work and solidarity. Uh, I mean, like Doctors Without Borders is a good example of like mezzo type of work, I guess I could say. Yeah. Mm. How do you not bring your work from home? Mm, yes and right um i think as i've been learning more about just how to apply ironically my own coping skills and techniques to myself because i was like oh you're a therapist do you use your things on yourself and i was like hell yeah i do <laughs> but also like it does totally influence me right like i i don't want to pretend like those stories that i carry and hold with me aren't seriously heavy like mm. I, I i honor those i let myself cry i let myself be mad i let myself be depressed even at times um but it's also a matter of like how do you get out and how do you balance and strike that and i think i have a really great balance with like my personal life my hobbies my loved ones and a lot of really good support systems outside of it um because there's no way that i would be able to serve the community in that way without also having that reciprocation of community support. Mm, definitely. 
if you cannot help if you're empty. Yeah, yeah. You can't pour from empty. Is mm. one of my favorite lines. <laughs> exactly. What if you're gonna help a patient that barely speaks English? How can you help a person like that? Yeah. Um. For me, I haven't because uh, of the type of practice that I was in. Um, they were kiddos that are like, you know, from the state and residential. Um, I, we have a lot of programs for like immigrants and refugees within Portland, like ERCO, that actually have specialties for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if, if there's a language barrier, I will refer out um, because unfortunately, I don't believe that I could serve them to the best of my ability in the way that they deserve. Like they deserve that type of level of understanding because I can't catch those slight colloquialisms and changes in languages when I'm mm. treating it. Um, so language barriers are very real uh, in the therapy <laughs> world. Yeah, Definitely. You also mentioned that you're a therapy for decolonizing popular practices. What do you mean by that? Yeah, uh, I guess it's kind of like circling back to that DSM-5 thing where most of those mental health diagnoses and kind of the way that they create criteria um, is based off of studying white middle class upper class males um and so when we're looking at the way mental health kind of manifests within those realms it's it's a it's a really narrow lens and so when i'm decolonizing popular practice i'm moving away from the notion that the gatekeepers know everything i refuse to acknowledge that upper academia is the only way when we have many community experts that don't need a degree to know things out here Uh, a really easy like i guess like a parallel i like to make is um within the education system um so you can see like so oregon has this new thing uh kindergarten for all because in the united states so like we have grades you know one through 12 which is the last for like high school or whatever but kindergarten before that to prep them for those grades um they noticed that, and also, excuse me, preschool before kindergarten, um, they noticed that black boys were getting expelled from preschool. Yeah, 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 exactly. And that that is straight up entrenched in racism. It's just even that access to academia, it starts on a very basic level. And so then, you know, like um, some colleagues in the county were like, well, we should have access for preschool, not just the options of private preschool or the small ones that are that people don't get waitlisted off. They get kicked out of. So they're, they're making more access to education. And that is within my lifetime. Right. And so mm. there is absolutely no way that academics today have truly refined or only know one way. Um, we have so many different types of spirituality and indigenous wisdoms lost, uh, like very easy example, uh, burnings, right? Uh, we have horrible wildfires that burnt down like the gorge in Oregon, um, in, in California, things like that. Mm-hmm. Whereas the indigenous folks would do controlled burnings to make sure that doesn't happen. And so now we have scientists that are like, whoa, did you know this? And it's like, well, no, shit, Sherlock, we've known this, but you told us X, Y, and Z wasn't relevant. And so when I'm doing decolonizing practices, I'm not listening to the academic discourse. I'm listening to what are the community needs? What do mm-hmm. they already know? What do they, what are they saying doesn't work, right? 
Um, like a really good example is so many DV advocates are like, call the cops. You do not call the cops when you think the cops are going to arrest both parties mm. because they're brown or are going to get deported or are going to have so many horribly negative consequences if they choose that. And so decolonizing popular practice to me is also not focusing only on systemic resources like DHS, the state and the government, but more so to reinvest back into the community and center them rather than these monetary powers that are just choosing who is the deserving and undeserving of these services while maintaining power. Mm. Are th- do you have clients that are male? Yeah. Yeah. I have a, a quite a diversity of clients. I have a range of like cisgender um, clients, male, female, trans, non-binary. Um, I really do have quite a range of clients. And do you obviously approach them differently? Which one do you think are easier? Not easier, I guess. Like, uh, yeah, so easier to communicate with like the male or the female? Um, I think it's just a matter of how to communicate, right? Um, because like communicating, like just taken away from like the gendered binary with an individual ultimately boils down to how relational are you? Are you recognizing them as the individual rather than all of these boxes that can create them into a stereotypical monolith? Hmm. Um, because some of the most insightful, like conversations and facilitations and sessions that I've had are from people you would expect me not to get along with um, and or on my day-to-day I obviously their clients I want to be friends with them but like individuals that have wildly different backgrounds it's it's a matter of how how are you able to authentically connect with them and hear them as they are um, rather than only focusing on these kind of stereotypes that make them them um, I will admit, like it's it's easy because there's so much so much resources for cis het female sex traffic survivors than there are males, right? Like mm. that, that's just a blatant in- inequity, um, and even more so inequity that's not even being talked about, quite frankly. And most of the discourse of trafficking survivors are the trans and non-binary ones. Um, those are the core of my work because then you also have like gender dysphoria how do you process that when you're you also have deep complicated sexual trauma and how that's making you dysphoric with your body mm-hmm. and so i think it, it's it's also like you know how much does the participant want to engage what are their what's their capacity what are they willing to but because there's so many examples for females there's so many online resources i can like point them to whereas like for males or trans non-binary just anyone else it's very difficult Hmm. Have you had a patient that is violent towards you? Um, yeah, in the past I have. Um, that was more so back when I was working um in residential programs. Um, but you know, when when I'm looking at anger, I'm looking at anger as an expression of need, right? Like a, a, a good example is like, why is this kid so angry and always yelling at me? Well, maybe back at home outside of the classroom, right? Maybe the kid had to yell over several siblings to get their needs met. And mm. anger to me is more so a process. Hmm. Listen, I'd like to talk to you all night, but I think we're there. 
before we close out, do you have any parting message for the listeners? Um, yeah, I guess for uh, any of those survivors out there, you are powerful. You truly are. Um, I guess for survivors that are out there, no matter what, lack of support, all the supports in the world, you are your own expert and your experiences are valid. Hmm. Wise word from a wise woman. Again, Taylor, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really, really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Definitely. Have a good evening. You too. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Thank you again, Taylor, for coming on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, listeners, for listening. This is Aaron Deliosa for An Immigrant's Life. I'll see you guys later. <laughs>